Well, please turn me. Uh, please turn with me uh, to Paul's letter to the Colossians, and uh, turning this morning to uh, Colossians chapter two. Let's uh, begin our reading at the end of chapter 1. Uh, let's begin at Colossians 1 at verse 24, and we'll read into chapter 2 at verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We have been uh, looking at Paul's letter uh, to the Colossians, and one of the things that uh, hopefully has been coming out uh, in our study of this letter is, is how central Paul has been on the question of who Jesus is. What we believe about Jesus determines everything. And as Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, you remember that he, he hammered uh, away at his doctrine at his understanding of who Jesus is, his Christology. Uh, we may have many books on our bookshelves, uh, but I remember one uh, pastor asking the question to fellow seminarians, to fellow pastors in training. He said, but how many books do you have on your bookshelf about the person of Christ? Who is Jesus? Tell me what you believe concerning Jesus. And here in Colossians, Paul has been hammering away at uh, the glory of the Lord Jesus. You remember that he described him as the image of the invisible God. You remember that he described him as in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. You remember that he said that in him all things hold together. That he is the creator uh, of all things and that he was before all things. And so for Paul... Before anything else comes in his letter to the church, the foundation of everything that he is going to say depends on their understanding of who Jesus is. If we get Jesus wrong, 
then we're going to get everything else wrong. If we have a bad foundation, then everything that's built on that foundation will be insecure. And so as Paul has been laboring at this, we have mentioned uh, several things uh, already about our understanding of Christ. This, this morning, as we're turning to Colossians 2, we want to zero in on something that Paul says in these verses here, uh, something that he'd already hinted at earlier in chapter 1, but it is the idea of wisdom. And we want to think about how Jesus is the wisdom of God. And because Jesus is the wisdom of God, we are to seek to understand all things through Christ. We're to understand all things in light of Christ and by Christ. Paul, in this letter, we said uh, he's been uh, describing something of his aim in his ministry. Paul, he described himself as an apostle of Christ, uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And as he described himself as one who has been sent, one who had been commissioned by the risen Lord, he described himself as one who was sent with a message to tell good news to sinners. But he also described himself more generally as a minister, as a servant. And he summarized his ministry there at the end of chapter 1. His ministry was really to proclaim and to teach and to warn everyone in order that they might come to fully know the word of God, that the word of God might be fulfilled. But more than that, that they might be complete in Christ, that they might be mature in Christ, that they would be stable in their faith and to see that Christ is sufficient for all of their needs. And this morning we are continuing to look that that idea of Paul's ministry continues into chapter 2 here. But we want to really look at how Paul is emphasizing the outcome of his ministry. That people would know the wisdom of God in Christ and therefore be wise. And so we want to think about these verses in those two thoughts. The wisdom of God and uh, making people wise. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That word struggle is uh, the, the same word from which we get our English word agony. Uh, it is a word that conveys the idea of exerting great energy into something. It is a word that was used for athletes. Uh, when they uh, were engaged in some competitive uh, context. They're, they're all in in what they're doing. And so when Paul says that he has a great struggle for them, he is saying that he is invested in them, uh, that he is, he is laboring for them. And when Paul uses this language elsewhere in his letters, uh, he talks about his struggles. He oftentimes is thinking in terms of his struggle with defending the faith, uh, defending the truth against false teaching, but also the consequences of defending the faith, uh, the suffering that comes as a result. Paul talks about what he is going through uh, as, as suffering for the sake of the church, which is what he had highlighted at the end of chapter 1. But when Paul talks to the Colossian church here and he says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for those who have not seen me face to face. 
Paul is no doubt including in that the idea of defending the faith for them, that they might be built up, that they might know the truth. But Paul most likely is incorporating more than that. It is likely that Paul here, when he's talking about his agony for the church, he's talking about his struggle for the church, he's talking about his investment in the church, he's thinking about his prayers for the church, that Paul prays for these people. That, that comes out when we look at the end of this letter of uh, Paul to the Colossians. If you turn to chapter 4, we looked at this uh, before, but in chapter 4, he highlights Epaphras. And in verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What was Epaphras struggling? His, his agony, his investment, his, his, his devotion for the church was one in which he, he was praying for them. He, he labored that they would be people who would be mature in their faith, that they would be able to stand even when he wasn't there. We highlighted before, it says in verse 13 that Epaphras had a ministry in this region. The distance between Colossae and Laodicea is only 20 kilometers. And there was a third city there mentioned in verse 13, a place called Hierapolis. And these three spots were really forming a small triangle and that's where Epaphras ministered. But as, as Epaphras is ministering in these three different locations, he can't be everywhere at once. But he's struggling for these churches. And his struggle for them is as in his prayers. That even when he's not there, they would stand in the faith. That even when he's not there to, to push back against false teaching, that the church would be competent to be able to stand up and to be able to discern truth from error. That they would be shielded from the evil one and that they would be loyal to the Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here too. That as an apostle, he too is praying for this church. He too is praying for those whom he has not even seen face to face. There is a bond that unites them and so he is struggling for them. But as he is saying all this, you notice uh, that he is again unpacking his, his, the aim of his own ministry. And he says three things here in verses 2 and 3. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, that they might be knit together in love, and that they might reach the full riches of understanding of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He says there that their hearts might be encouraged in verse 2. Uh, Tychicus, uh, again, at the end of Paul's letter, he makes mention of Tychicus. Uh, and he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Uh, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. You notice there that what Tychicus is doing, his, his labor is to encourage their hearts. To encourage meaning to strengthen them. Uh, and to strengthen their hearts meaning not just their feelings. But in scripture, the language of your heart, your kidneys, your liver, they all denoted your inward parts. From the depths of your being. That, that from, 
from everything that makes you tick. Uh, your feelings, your will, your thoughts. Uh, this, this summarizes uh, uh, the, the core and the depth of, of your person. And here, uh, uh, Paul explains that Tychicus was sent in order to encourage them or to strengthen them so that they would know of Paul's situation, so that they wouldn't be concerned with doubts about what wasn't true about Paul's situation, but so that the truth might be established and that they might rest secure in the knowledge of Paul's real situation. And so when Paul says that I struggle on your behalf, that you might be encouraged in your hearts, that's not flowery language. That's Paul saying, I want you to be solidified. I want you to be built up and strengthened in your convictions. I want you to know the truth so that you're not wavering in doubt, so that you're not shaken by fears that aren't true. I want you to be led in the truth. And that's Paul's labor. That's what his ministry was all about. Building up the faith of those who have come to faith. Of bringing the faith to those who have not yet. That he might present everyone mature in Christ. And so he says, my, my ministry is about encouraging your hearts. That's what I labor for, even in my prayers. But then secondly, he says that you might be knit together in love. That word knit together is a word that means to cause to unite, to cause to come together. Uh, outside the Bible, you see it being used to describe welding. Uh, that shows the strength of that bond uh, to bring together uh, uh, in a, a common unity. Um, as the word of God is made known, the, the spirit works upon the hearts of individuals, causing them to know God's grace, but to embrace it. The work of the spirit, though, is not only to produce a new will, a new affection. It does that. And that new affection, Paul has already said, is really accepting the fact that Christ is to be preeminent in all things. That's what it means to have a new desire. One of our forefathers in the faith, a man who was instrumental in the founding of the Free Church of Scotland, Thomas Chalmers, once talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. What was he talking about? As a mathematician himself, he came to a knowledge of God's grace and he said it was a new desire was implanted in him. He now had this orientation that Christ was to be first in his life. That's the work of the Spirit. When the Word of God comes alive in a person, they're now gripped by it, and they now live with Christ as first and foremost. But it's also the work of the Spirit to not only produce a new will, a new desire within, but now they are being united with God's people. And so when Paul prays, I pray that you would be encouraged in your hearts and knit together in love. He's saying, I'm praying that the work of the Spirit would continue to blossom. That those who have this common unity in Christ would see their belonging to one another. They're being knit together. They're being welded together because they form the people of God. 
And so Paul here is explaining again another aspect of his ministry, trying to build up the fellowship of the saints that they might be knit together in love. But this third thing that he mentions is the wisdom of God. And in verse 3, Paul says, uh, sorry, it's, it's still in verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. There are many people who are very bright. They have studied a lot. They have doctoral degrees. They have done much in terms of accumulating information. You can know a lot of things and not be wise because wisdom is not simply knowledge. Wisdom is the application to being able to live rightly in situations before us. Wisdom is living rightly in our situations according to God's ways. And so someone can be uh, 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 winning Nobel Prizes, someone can be a doctor, someone can be a lawyer, they can, they can be well uh, established in the academy, they can know a lot of things but their choices in life may betray an ignorance or a short-sightedness as to what they're living ultimately for. Here, Scripture is talking about the importance of wisdom. And the role of wisdom is twofold. The role of wisdom is to protect a person from uh, foolishness and destructiveness. And it is to guide them in the right way. So wisdom is a most prized thing to acquire. We read earlier in the book of Proverbs. And what does Proverbs teach? It says in Proverbs 4, whatever you do, get wisdom. Whatever you do, get insight. That what matters most is is that we would have wisdom to live rightly. That we would not just have knowledge of the world around us, but that we would be able to live rightly in the situations we find ourselves in. According to the scriptures, wisdom deals then with the ability to live rightly, to to have a knowledge of God and to apply that knowledge in concrete situations to the practical affairs of life. It is a skill that is able to live rightly and honors God in our experiences. But if we live our lives as if there is no God, then ultimately we are saying there is no right way by which to adjudicate or to evaluate how one lives. You're just living. You're just making choices. But there's no right choice or wrong choice. And ultimately we are a runaway train. If we are to live our lives striving in a right direction, then we need to have a map. We need to have a way of knowing what is true when things can be shadowy, when things can be difficult to make judgments, to make decisions. There needs to be something that guides us. And ultimately, that is the wisdom of God. Paul is stressing here that wisdom is something that is found in Christ. 
Again, he said something to that sort back at the end of chapter one. He says, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. But now Paul is coming back to that and he's saying, the wisdom of God is Christ. That wisdom is found in Jesus himself. And he wants to develop this idea. You notice that what Paul does here is he's really tapping into the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. He's tapping into the book of Proverbs in particular. And you can see that in different ways. But one way that you can see that is is that in verses 2 and 3, Paul uses five words that all echo from Proverbs chapter 2. They are the words knowledge, understand, treasure, wisdom, and understanding. In Proverbs chapter 2, at verse 3, it says, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. What is treasure? We might think of gold and silver as treasure. It's something that's valuable. But the scriptures teach us that wisdom is something to be even more valued than money. Why? Because while money can do many things for us, it also has many limitations. Money can be taken from us, but money also cannot help with the the full depth of our need. Money cannot protect our soul. Money cannot guide us in the way of righteousness. And so here we see in the book of Proverbs that we are to seek it with recognizing that we do pursue good things in this life. We are to recognize that above even wealth, we are to seek after wisdom. But not only does Proverbs teach that we should seek after wisdom, it is only when we acquire wisdom that we will find a deep satisfaction of happiness. And more than that, Proverbs teaches that when we have wisdom, we have the knowledge of God. You see a very different view of wisdom from the Buddhists. The Buddhists who have their path of the enlightenment seek after wisdom apart from a knowledge of God. Their pursuit of wisdom is detached from that because it's not asking the question of how do I live rightly? How do I honor God in the concrete situations I'm in? Rather, it is much more embodied with a question about suffering. But here, true wisdom is found by living before God and honoring him in our lives. It is bringing in the whole picture of God and his creation. And so here, the book of Proverbs teaches us that the effect of having wisdom is having a knowledge of God himself. Proverbs, though, depicts wisdom like a voice calling out in the streets. A voice that is trying to guide us through life. A voice that would bring us on the right way. But what Paul is saying is is that that voice is actually Jesus' voice. That what Proverbs was trying to capture with this idea that we need to be guided in the right way. Paul is saying that's who Jesus is. Jesus is that voice who guides us in the right way. And he comes to us in our sin And he calls us unto himself to find satisfaction. 
Jesus himself would say things like, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the voice of wisdom because he is calling us unto the right way. Like a good shepherd who calls his sheep back unto himself. Like the voice of wisdom that leads us how to live rightly before God. Because he knows the will of the Father. Jesus calls us to live in a way that would protect us from foolishness. Living as a law unto ourselves. He's a voice of wisdom because he protects us from destruction. The judgment against our sin. And so here Paul is explaining the aim of his ministry. To encourage your hearts. That you would be strengthened in your convictions. That you would be united together. Knit together in love. But both of those things hinge and are dependent on. Reaching the full riches of understanding of the wisdom of God. Because it's only when you see that Christ is the wisdom of God. That you will be able to be built up in the knowledge. To be encouraged in your heart. It's only when you see Christ as the wisdom of God. That you will be united with the people of God. In a dependent aim in life. We are going on the same path. We are going on the same way. And so there will be that knitting together. Because there is a common understanding of where wisdom is found. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and this idea of Jesus as the wisdom of God rubs you the wrong way. It's one thing to say that Jesus is wisdom, but to say that he is the wisdom that we are to listen to sounds so intolerant. Uh, We want to sound and be more tolerant and open-minded as a society. And we want to think of Jesus simply as one voice among many voices that would guide us unto wisdom. There are problems with that, though. Because if we think that Jesus is simply one voice of wisdom calling out in the streets amongst many voices of wisdom calling out to us. The problem is, is that when you have many voices competing and they're all on equal planes, eventually those voices will come up with different verdicts. They will contradict or compete with and confront with one another on their claims. The voice of Jesus, when it comes to what we believe about God, what we believe about human nature, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about uh, the destiny of, uh, of creation and of all things, differs from the voice of the Buddha. It differs from the voice of Muhammad. And so at some point, you're going to have contradictory claims. I was reading recently of a person who was uh, writing a book on uh, different religions, uh, the, the famous five. And as he was talking about those religions, uh, he said that he was having a conversation with someone. And they asked him, they said, do you think really when you boil it down, there's any real differences between Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and Christianity? He said, do you think if if you shaded over all the overlaps between the religions, do you think there would be anything that was not shaded over? That there's anything really unique in any of the religions? And John Dixon replied by saying, I actually think there would be very little that would be shaded over. A little provocative. But he was trying to get at the point that you're not respecting these religions if you think they all say the same thing. Because they're not even asking the same questions. 
Wisdom is found by living rightly according to God. Living rightly in our situations according to God's works and God's will. And it's only when we know of God's works and God's will that we can then respond rightly. There's a second problem. Not only is there a problem of contradictory claims if we try to listen to all these different voices on equal levels, if we're offended by the idea that Jesus is the wisdom of God. But there's another problem, a deeper problem, really. Because if we're offended by the thought that Jesus is the wisdom of God, and we want to look at all these other alternative wisdoms, essentially we are saying, wisdom is what I choose to make it. I am the evaluator and adjudicator of what wisdom is. That wisdom is defined by my own preferences. That living rightly is whatever I feel is living rightly, which is foolishness. A failure to be able to be assessed. A failure to look in light of anything beyond ourselves. And so here, when we think about what is being claimed, Jesus is the full riches of understanding, the wisdom of God. He helps us know how to live rightly. What Paul is saying is something profound. It's by listening to the voice of Jesus that I can make sense of this world, that I can be redeemed from my sin, and that I can be guided through this life. But notice what Paul says as well. When he says these words, he says that you would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. In verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. When Paul says all the treasures are found in Christ, all wisdom is found in Christ, that means that there's no need to look anywhere else for wisdom that there is no alternative that one needs to look to in order to know how to live rightly in God's world. That it is in and through Christ that we can make sense of our situation. It's in and through God's works in Christ that we can live rightly before God. And that helps us. Because what Paul is saying is, is that his aim is that we would be able to live wisely. His prayer, his struggle, is, is that they would be encouraged in the heart, knit together in love, and to know the wisdom of God, so that no one might delude you, no one might deceive you, that you would not be led astray by things that sound right but are actually not true. How are we going to avoid being led down the garden path? How are we going to avoid being pulled by seductive voices like Proverbs warned against? How are we going to be shielded from making shipwreck of our faith? And Paul is saying it's through the wisdom of God. We become wise when we find our wisdom is only in Christ. That we wouldn't be led away by these false teachings. So one thing that we should be asking ourselves is if we are going to be wise, we need to be protected from false teaching. When we are evaluating teaching, we should always ask ourselves, does this lead me to conclude that all I really need is Christ? Or does it lead me to the conclusion that there is something lacking 
in Christ. We are in the month of October when people will be commemorating and remembering the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the, the doors of Wittenberg. That sparked a great change in the Western Church. But time has moved on, and people constantly ask whether the rift between the Protestants and the Catholics is really that big of a deal now, 500 years later. Wasn't it really uh, uh, blowing up over something small? Wasn't it really just about moral corruption that was taking place in the church? It wasn't. The difference comes back to this point that Paul is laboring at in Colossians. We are asking the question, is there something lacking in Christ or is the wisdom of God found in Christ alone? Is all that I need Christ or do what I need Christ and the church? Is it Christ and Mary who is the conciliatory, who brings the necessary blessings that I need in this life and in the next as the catechism of the Catholic Church says? We're asking the question, how does one live rightly? How does one protect oneself from being led by false uh, teachings? And Paul is saying, you will reach maturity and completion. You will reach, you will, you will grow as a Christian and be able to stand mature when you understand not only who Jesus is, but that's all you need to be right with God then you won't be enticed by these false teachings that come later about angels and visions, about all these practices that are being thought up. You will be able to look at them and to evaluate them by saying, are you suggesting there's something lacking in what Christ did? Are you suggesting that my works have to be part of the mix in terms of making me right before God? Are you trying to lead me away from the sufficiency of Christ? When we have that question, we're able to assess and to discern and to have understanding. You notice he goes on, he, say this, he says in verse 4 and 5, I say this in order that no one may delude you, deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. The good order here, uh, since he is dealing with false teaching, the good order here is doctrinal order. He's talking about they would be ordered rightly in terms of what they believe. And so it comes back to what we said at the beginning. What you believe about Jesus determines everything. That if we get Jesus wrong, then we're going to get everything else wrong. But if he is the creator of all things. If in, all in, if in him all things hold together, then he is central. If, if he is the one who has made peace by the blood of his cross, then my works are not part of the equation of making myself right before God. That when we look at things in light of Christ, we're able to have wisdom. We won't be enticed by false teaching. If we believe that Christ is the wisdom of God in reconciling sinners unto himself, then we will marvel. We won't be enticed by teachings that would say we have to win the approval of God by our good works. 
If we believe that Christ is the wisdom of God and teaches us how to live rightly, then we won't listen uh, or be inclined to listen to voices that teach that Christ, uh, uh, that the wisdom uh, is found elsewhere but rather we will look to the one who holds all things together. We will, understand, we will understand why it is right to live righteously in a world that scoffs at righteousness. We will be able to look at Paul's situation of suffering in prison and to say that wasn't in vain. We will learn how it is right to show forgiveness to a world that only wants to cancel each other. We will learn that mercy is something to be celebrated. That's wisdom. But it's wisdom that comes from God in Christ. And so as we think about uh, the wisdom of God, where do we go to learn and to assess, are you living rightly? Jesus calls us to come to him and to learn from him. As we come to him, we can find the forgiveness of sins. But we can also learn to live rightly and to have the peace and satisfaction that Proverbs was promising. Those who acquire wisdom will be satisfied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, the way we live our lives, we pray, Lord, that we would be granted humility to take stock as to what it is we are living for, that we would not only make choices, but that we would be mindful uh, of the question, are we making wise choices? Are we living rightly? And we pray, Lord, that this would ultimately drive us to the realization that it is uh, uh, the need to acknowledge you in all things. Lord, we pray that we would not only acknowledge that there is a God, but that we would acknowledge your works in and through the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, then, that you would grant us not only knowledge of him, but wisdom and understanding that we might live our lives uh, in light of him and to the glory of his name. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.